Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. State Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, has proposed that Utah follow the example of six other states and legalize assisted suicide. Her bill is HB 76, End of Life Options Act. Each of those aforementioned six states requires that the patient be of sound mind and have less than six months to live. Proponents say that individuals should have more control over decisions about quality of life and the timing of the end of life. Assisted suicide is opposed by churches, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those churches cite their belief in the sanctity of life and also uh, it's opposed by disability rights groups, which, uh, quoting for the Deseret News here, fear that as society comes to see loss of dignity and autonomy, the very physical conditions that often define their own worthwhile lives as rationales for assisted suicide, that the perceived social value of a disabled life will erode. On the other end of the spectrum, Holland and Belgium, again quoting from the Desert News, have dramatically liberalized eligibility for assisted suicide to not include just dementia, but also people with anorexia and the severely depressed alcoholics and others. We want to know what you think. Who should make these critical end-of-life decisions? Where do you draw the line? And this season even gets us into a definition of life and the definition of death. Have you had a family member, friend, uh, had to wrestle with these kinds of decisions? Have you and your family had to wrestle with, with these decisions? Uh, you can comment right now to upraxcess at gmail.com. That's upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, you're able to call us as well. We're opening the phone lines. 1-800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. 800-826-1495. We'll be discussing this throughout the hour, and we'll have with us Dr. Elizabeth Pollock, who is a, a doctor, medical ethicist at the University of Utah, and who is dealing with these issues, thinking through these issues in her own life. Um, she is in advanced uh, stage cancer, unfortunately, in her life, and is having to think through uh, some of these things. She is in support of this uh, this bill. We'll also be talking with Dr. Margaret Batten, medical ethicist at the University of Utah, who had to go through uh, these decisions with regard to her husband, uh, a University of Utah professor who was uh, severely disabled in a bicycling accident, and they as a couple uh, made the decision to end his life uh, a few years ago. We'll be talking with John Kelly from the disability rights group Not Dead Yet. We'll also be talking with Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, uh, who is the sponsor of the bill. And uh, we will be talking shortly here with uh, Dr. Ed Red, who is a member of the House of Representatives uh, uh, from Utah and uh, represents uh, area of North Logan. He's a medical doctor, and uh, he, I believe, opposes this uh, measure. We uh, want to know what you think. 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Let's jump right into our first email. This is from Sue in Castle Valley. Sue says, you have this one terribly wrong. The bill is called the End of Life Options Act. It enables people with terminal illness to request a physician to provide medication to end a life of terrible suffering with no hope of recovery. The physician has no mandate to do so. When and how to die may be one of the most intimate and personal choices we and our loved ones have to make. Politicians have no right to make this decision for us. Other enlightened states have chosen to leave this choice to an individual and her physician. 
respectfully, Sue, in uh, Castle Valley. We thank you very much, Sue. And that first line, I think, gets to what we call this. This is one of those issues where the terminology is very important and a sensitive issue. She says, you have this one terribly wrong. We've been referring to this as assisted suicide. Some call this physician-assisted suicide. Um, others call it physician-assisted death. Um, and, uh, and so what we call this is even uh, even uh, critically important and, and very sensitive. Thanks for that email, uh, Sue. Appreciate uh, your perspective. We'll get to emails from Warren and from Barbara, and hopefully your email as well. We'd love to hear your experience, your uh, take on this critical issue at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We bring in now uh, Dr. Ed Red. He's a representative uh, from uh, North Logan, uh, a Republican. Uh, Dr. Red, thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thank you. Uh, so what, what's your take on uh, this uh, HB 76? Uh, Representative Chavez Hauk has run this, I think, a couple of previous years. It is, it is not, I think, uh, passed out of committee. I'm not sure what the, what the uh, fate of the bill will be uh, this time around, but important issues. What's, uh, what's your take on this bill? Well, my, my, I have a lot of concerns with, with this bill. Uh, it, in, my, in my opinion, this is, a, this is you know, basically taking a step that causes a cultural paradigm shift in society, as far as I can tell, and um, I, I, I have some serious concerns uh, with the concept uh, that that uh, you know physicians are now going to uh, you know help people die with the intent of helping them die rather than addressing their pain and suffering. So I, I have some serious concerns about it. Uh, so uh, I, I don't know if you've uh, you probably have dealt with these things as a physician. This has got to be you know for the family, for the physician, everyone involved, for the person. Obviously, it's a very wrenching uh, decision, and there there's a continuum, isn't there? There's uh, you know right now we allow uh, for a, a person to say no heroic measures, right? Oh, well, certainly, and I, th- I think that's totally appropriate. I think you know, if a person has a terminal illness, you know, and and they don't want to they don't want to be put on a ventilator, or don't want to be you know, kept alive uh, with using artificial means, uh, you know, like artificial interventions. They want to allow nature to take its course. I think that's, you know, in my mind, that's that's what we've uh, had to do out of necessity for the last, you know, several thousand years. Uh, and over the last uh, hundred years, uh, or maybe, well, we've been intervening trying to relieve pain and suffering for a long time, but certainly the last uh, hundred years and the last even several decades, we've really focused on you know, competent uh, palliative care for those who are dying and, and suffering during the process. And I think that's really what we need to focus on is, 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 is promoting and, and developing competent palliative care for people who are going through, you know, you know, serious, you know, symptoms and problems with their, during the dying process. Later in the program, we're going to hear from Dr. Elizabeth Pollock, a medical ethicist at the University of Utah. She's having a personal experience. Uh, she she uh, beat cancer uh, earlier, and now it's come back, and it's, it is, she has a terminal diagnosis now. She says something very interesting. She says if she knows she can go out on her own terms, in other words, medical-assisted uh, suicide, um, that'll make the, the rest of her life what she has left uh, better. She'll be easier in mind. She can gather her family around her and, and go out on her own terms. Yeah, and I, and I sympathize with her and her situation because, you know, one out of three of us, we're going to have, you know, developed cancer at some point in our life, and we're all going to face death at some point in our experience. Uh, the problem with this bill, the problem with this concept, is it is it runs the risk, in my in my mind, of a gradual shift in culture that uh, 
you know, that, that potentially devalues the lives of people who have been labeled with a terminal disease. Um, and, and, and I think people, you know, I, I think people want to be able to control their lives at the, at the end of their life and they want physicians to help them with that. And I, you know, for the last several thousand years, physicians have been doing their best to, to relieve pain and suffering, but, but, but we've never ethically been allowed to, you know, or been encouraged to uh, intervene and, and, sh- and purposely, you know, ending a person's life. Uh, and I, that's, that's a huge change in what we've been doing for the last several thousand years. So I, my concern is, is that this, this basically, you know, runs the risk of, of devaluing the lives of people who do have terminal illnesses and, and gives providers and society uh, an excuse, you know, to, to not provide good palliative care and not provide interventions. I mean, I've had patients who have a diagnosis of a terminal illness who, you know, we, we thought they were going to die in three or four weeks or a month or two uh, with, with certain types of cancer who have gone on to live, you know, several years up to five years in one case where, you know, based on my experience and clinical data, you know, the person should have died you know, within several months of my diagnosis, but he went on to, to you know, get treatment, get interventions, and, and, and have some meaningful time with his family and his and his loved ones during those five years. And if we told him, you know, if we come up front and say, that, that, you know, physicians, patients come to us for advice, they come to us for, you know, they want, they want us to tell, us, tell them what we think. Well, if, if our practice is to, you know, provide, you know, here you've got a terminal illness, you're probably going to die within six months, here's these pills, uh, you can certainly take them if you want to. Um, then, then what that does is kind of takes away any hope that they may have of actually having some meaningful time with their family and say, yeah, my doctor thinks that this is hopeless. Uh, and, and quite honestly, many, many of them are very depressed, you know, about the whole diagnosis. If a person gets a terminal diagnosis to say they're not depressed, I think is you've got to have some serious, you know, issues, you know, inside your mind about, you know, what, what's going to happen to me. I mean, they're worried, they're anxious. They need some support from their physician and their care providers. Uh, they don't need reinforcement of of the you know of, of the uh, of the of their situation. That this, that they don't need reinforcement of a hopeless situation. I, that's kind of my take on it. And again, I think inside the hospice care uh, paradigm, we we do provide what I think is palliative care. I, I've, I've been a hospice provider. I've taken care of many of my patients. I've been at their bedsides when you know during the dying process. I've administered medications to manage their pain and their suffering. And I think. You know, most physicians that are involved in palliative care uh, feel like they're doing, at least I did, I feel like I've done the best job I can to make their, their dying process as painless as possible. And uh, I don't know, I think, I think we should continue to focus on competent palliative care and not going in this pathway. I was just going to ask you about the, the state of palliative care at, at other, but at least been attempts to, to make advances there. Um, and you've, you've said in your experience you you feel like you've been able to manage pain in, in terminal patients and make them more comfortable. Uh, w- one thing that uh, some people uh, say in response to that is that that's great, um, but some people fear that they'll, with pain medication, palliative care, that they'll, they'll be more mentally impaired. They won't be as present with their family at that critical time when they're, when they're dying. Um, uh, well, I'm not I mean, it's hard to know exactly because every every patient that I've gone through this process with has been a you know a completely different case. I mean, I can't think of two different hospice patients that I've cared for that had the exact same clinical course, the exact same process, and so it really is a it's a team approach. 
uh, you have you know several nurses, you have a physician or several physicians sometimes uh, that are working on addressing the pain and trying to intervene to uh, to, to make sure the patient's as comfortable as possible. Uh, and, and when you get in situations where the suffering is intense, uh, you administer additional medication to reduce the suffering. Your intent is to reduce the pain and the suffering, not to terminate the person's life. And so this is all about intent. And and, uh, and again, I think that's where we need to focus is, is, is continuing to improve competent palliative care. Uh, a couple of countries in Europe are at the, the, the forefront on, on one end of the spectrum here. That's the Netherlands and uh, Belgium. The Netherlands currently allows, I'm quoting from the Desert News, uh, assisted suicide only for those who have unbearable suffering, no prospect of improvement. That category includes extreme mental suffering. But in October, the Dutch government officials proposed a law that would create a new category, permitting assisted suicide for healthy elderly people who feel they've just uh, completed their life. This gets us to a, a slippery slope argument. I'm not yep. sure if you you know it's quite uh, made that argument. But you have, I assume, you have some slippery slope concerns. Absolutely. I mean, you know, right now the bill is, is being framed as, as, as for people who are mentally competent to make these decisions. And I ask the question, well, if you're going to allow somebody who's mentally competent to make the decision, why are you not allowing a legal guardian who should be acting in the patient's best interest to make the decision? I mean, why are you limiting it? If you think this is okay for one group of people, then why isn't it okay for somebody, for a, a spouse of somebody with dementia or a guardian with, with somebody that has, you know, severe disabilities uh, and also has a terminal disease? I mean, there's, a lot, there's all sorts of ethical questions here that, that really are, don't have good answers, in my opinion. Uh, I mean, my biggest concern is, is that the state uh, will start to say, okay, uh, they'll start to look at this as a financial issue. They'll start to say, you know, we, we think it's a lot cheaper to give these pills than to provide even palliative care. We're going we're gonna to reimburse differently. As time goes on, it may not happen next week, next month, next year, but as time goes on, they'll say we're going we're gonna to differentially reimburse providers for certain interventions over other interventions. And, and, and they, they already kind of do that. I mean, you know, I mean, hospice care is much better. Much better. You know, the cost of out-of-pocket cost for patients for hospice care is different than out-of-pocket cost for, you know, uh, you know, interventions in the hospital and that sort of thing. So, uh, my concern is is that is that this this, this will take the same pathway. Uh, and I, don't get me wrong, I love hospice care. I think it's the right thing to do in many people's situations. Uh, but uh, you know, over the next 20, 30 years, uh, the cultural change the acceptedness of this intervention will change and, and and providers will become you know comfortable with doing it and rather than than offer competent palliative care they'll they'll resort to the to the pills and and, and the patients will come to them for advice and they'll give them the advice that they're most experienced with which may be giving the pills instead of the competent palliative care and, and and let alone you know some some interventions to try and prolong somebody's life if somebody wants that, and people will start to think, well, it's my—it's no longer my option to choose this pathway. It's now my duty because this is kind of how society thinks we should behave. So, this is really a cultural shift, and I think it's a big shift. I don't think it's a small issue, and I think it has lots of unintended consequences that I'm not willing to support. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us, uh, Dr. Ed Red is a, a state representative, a Republican from uh, North Logan, and uh, provides a valuable perspective for us. Uh, thanks, Dr. Red. Pre- appreciate it. Thank you very much. Um, coming up following a break, we are going to be talking with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Pollock from uh, University of Utah. We'll get her personal experience as well. She is facing uh, end-of-life issues. Uh, we'll also be talking with uh, Dr. Margaret Batten, medical ethicist at the University of Utah, from John Kelly from the Disability Rights Group, Not Dead Yet. And at the end of the hour, we'll be talking with Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, whose uh, HB 76 End-of-Life Options Act has uh, prompted this discussion. And we hope that you will provide your perspective. What do you think? 
who should make these critical end-of-life decisions? Where do you draw the line? And have you had a personal experience in your family or with a friend with wrestling with these kinds of decisions? Uh, the uh, email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, and the phone number is 800-826-1495. More following this break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. Many wrongly assume that evolution implies progression towards something better, says USU biologist Paul Wolf. Evolution by natural selection is a mechanical process, he says, that simply favors organisms better suited to a particular environment at a particular time. Wolf says evolution does not predict the future. His lab uses a wide array of high-tech tools to study plant evolutionary biology, spanning population genetics to deep phylogeny. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. State Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City, is uh, running HB 76, uh, End of Life Options Act. Uh, she is proposing that Utah follow the example of six other states, legalize assisted suicide. Each of those states requires that the patient be of sound mind and have less than six months to live. Proponents say individuals should have more control over decisions about quality of life and timing of end of life. And assisted suicide is opposed by churches, citing uh, sanctity of life, and by some disability rights groups uh, and others. And uh, we want to know what you think. Who should make these critical end-of-life decisions? Where do you draw the line? Uh, have you had a personal experience with this? You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com or call us at 800-826-1495. Before we go to Dr. Pollock, I want to read this uh, email. This is uh, from Warren. Uh, Warren says, thanks for allowing this. He says, the first time I heard the expression death with dignity, I was then and still am upset. Sounds as though if you do not do it our way, you really do not care about the patient. We simply have not a clue as to how folks feel about terminally ill friends and relatives, no matter the age. That is preposterous and absurd. Moreover, we often treat the living terribly. There cannot be much to say with more and more countries coming on board with euthanasia. It's not new, and they should not be treated as such. Good luck. And they, quote-unquote, thought Kevorkian was nuts. That's a comment from Warren. And we'll get to another comment here a little bit later from uh, Barbara. And yours as well, we hope, at upraxcess.gmail.com. We bring in now uh, Dr. Elizabeth uh, Pollack. Uh, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Good. Um, just a slight correction. I am not a medical ethicist. I am a retired pathologist. I practiced in hospitals for over 30 years. Okay. So uh, thanks. I have... I have witnessed many, many terminal illnesses and deaths. Okay, uh, retired pathologist. Uh, appreciate that correction. Uh, you, Dr. Pollock, unfortunately, uh, are, are facing the, these decisions. Yes. Uh, you, you've, yes. uh, you, you, you uh, had cancer in remission for a while. It's come back. It, it, the, the diagnosis is terminal at this point? The diagnosis is terminal. Um, I actually uh, had more chemotherapy and surgery and went back into remission, so I am now uh, feeling well again, but it is a virtually 100% fatal diagnosis, ovarian cancer, and uh, so I'm, I'm dealing with all of those issues, yes. 
And what uh, I believe you're you're in support of this of this bill that uh, I am, allowing you to, I am to do in support this. Of this. And I have been in support of this since, actually, since I was a medical student and observing uh, terminal illnesses on my ward when I was uh, just learning medicine. It seemed to me that we were we were continuing to treat people when there was no hope. Um, the the argument that uh, you know we are we are playing God or we are uh, you know taking taking matters into our own hands. Well, actually, that's what medicine has done, uh, particularly since the '60s and '70s when uh, advanced uh, intensive care unit uh, practice came on when with ventilators and uh, renal dialysis and so forth. You know. Um, had I not had advanced medical care, I would have been dead four years ago. Uh, and so I'm very grateful for what I had. But the fact that, that people uh, ex- are extending their lives so far is because of the kind of treatment. And we have more taken this into our own hands by acting this way rather than uh, what we would be doing if we if we either allow people to, to just go or help them just a little bit at the end. By the way, we'll have a link a little later today on our, our website to a, a moving video, a, 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 a testimony, if you will, from uh, Dr. Pollock in favor of the, the bill that rep, uh, Representative chavez Hawk ran uh, last year, which I think is identical to this year's. Uh, in that, you this, this caught my eye, and this, this goes to what you were just talking about. It, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? The, the, the advancements in medicine... Uh, have saved your life to this point, but you said you that, fear getting right. getting caught up in a, the, the tsunami of modern medical care. You, you're referring the other side of that. I wonder if you could expand on that. That's right, I, and and that is one of the things that I fear. You know, Dr. Red was talking about you know controlling people's pain at the end and their suffering. Well, I would like to maintain that you know perhaps we could choose those few of us who wish to choose. This is going to be a choice. It's always a choice to end a little bit before that so that we don't have to go through a period of, of controlling pain. Because just, just the aspect of talking about controlling pain means that there is pain. I have had a considerable amount of pain already, and I really don't like it. Um, I watched uh, my 25-year-old great-nephew die of Ewing sarcoma a year and a half ago, and he was in, quote, palliative care, but he was in considerable pain for a long time, for several months. And, you know, it just, it just isn't fair. Hmm. Uh, and you've, you said in that video, if, and I quoted this to Dr. Ritt earlier, uh, maybe you could expand on this as well. If you know you can go out on your own terms, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, um, that'll make the rest of it, whatever life you have left, that'll make the rest of your life better. I think that's an extremely important point because, you know, in Oregon or Holland, wherever, when people ask for this and they get it, they don't all take it. They don't all use it. But the fact that you know that that you can stop your own suffering when you are ready to do it, that you can do it at a time of your own choosing, that you can have your family around you and get rid of all the medical apparatus and so forth, whatever, I think is a is a huge relief and comfort, and uh, 
I actually am considering moving to Oregon. I have a son who lives in Oregon so that I can have this available to me. My only option in Utah is to uh, starve and dehydrate myself, to make the choice to stop eating and stop drinking. And anybody who has been very thirsty at any point knows that this is an uncomfortable way to go. So if, if you were to move to Oregon, the, the, they allow a physician to prescribe a, a lethal dose of uh, what painkillers? Is that, That's is that what happens? Uh, I think they use all. I'm not exactly mm-hmm. sure which drug they use at this point, but it, it's, it's a medication that you take orally. Uh, in Oregon, you have to be able to do it yourself, so that means you have to do it at a time when you can make that decision. Um, yes. Uh, so I, I assume you you understand that, that, that some people, you know, including Dr. Red, are uncomfortable with what he calls a cultural shift. He he and and they cite his slippery slope arguments that they feel like, uh, for example, Holland and uh, Belgium uh, is just getting too loose. And and a proposal from uh, from Dutch legislators, I don't know if this passed, would include uh, you know mental anguish, and uh, you know it just seems to some people to be far too loose. Well, um, given that you have to be mentally competent and that it is a choice that is not going to be forced on anyone, I am not at all worried about slippery slope. I think we've had the law in place for about, was it 20 years? Uh, Dr. Batten will be able to give you the exact length in, in Oregon, and that hasn't happened at all. Hmm. So uh, so you're saying the evidence. Yeah, we will talk to Dr. Batten about that, that, that uh, the laws in place, at least in the, the U.S. states, six uh, states that, that currently allow it, uh, we've not had that, that uh, inclusive, uh, continuing uh, cultural shift. That's right. I think we have not. I mean, think about the cultural shift that we had with, with the introduction of, of the modern medicine techniques where we uh, invade the body and uh, we can keep a body alive uh, with no no functioning on its own, you know, you can keep the heart beating, you can keep the lungs breathing. Uh, that's a pretty big cultural shift, hmm. uh, just just on its own. What about the the argument put forward by some churches, sanctity of life uh, issues? That either God gave us life, and we we should leave it to Him to determine when we go out. Well. I guess I would have to say just about the same thing. If we're going to leave it to him, then we're we're going to withhold antibiotics. We're not going to put somebody on a respirator. You know, God thought I should die four years ago. Uh, he, he gave me ovarian cancer, but I chose to have surgery and chemotherapy, and I'm really glad I did because I had four more really good years. But I have seen uh, people suffer terribly at the end uh, because of the continued use of of these uh, supportive care systems. Mm. We've been talking with Dr. Elizabeth Pollack, retired uh, pathologist. Unfortunately, she is facing uh, end-of-life uh, decisions. Uh, best of luck to you. Thank thank you so much for, for uh, sharing your experience and your thoughts on this. You're welcome. And, and thank you for uh, putting this on the radio and uh, enlightening more people, getting more people to think about it. It's a conversation we all need to have. Thank you very much. Thank you. We, we appreciate you uh, uh, taking the time to, to be with us. Uh, coming up uh, later in the program, we will be talking to, with Representative Chavez Hauk. She is uh, running HB 76, which is uh, titled End of Life Options Act. 
We'll also be talking with John Kelly from the Disability Rights Group, Not Dead Yet. Coming up next, we're going to be talking with Dr. Margaret Batten, a medical ethicist at the uh, University of Utah. Um, and uh, next up, we uh, hear from Barbara, who's emailed us to upraxcess at gmail.com. This is what Barbara says. Many of us are very glad to be able to have the option of putting beloved pets out of their misery when old age and disease take the life out of their lives. Uh, but because of some centuries-old taboos against humane treatment of the old and sick of our own species, we make laws denying them the right to choose when our, their lives have become a painful burden and uh, to lay them down with the help of and in the company of those who have loved us most. If we are afraid of offending that God who blessed us with life, do we really think that she, he wants that blessing to end in unmitigated pain, loneliness, and despair? That is uh, Barbara. Thank you uh, for that. Appreciate uh, your response. And while we're getting Dr. Batten on the line, here is an email from Steve. Steve says, the assisted suicide issue is part of a broader spectrum, Tom. When you asked your listeners if they've had to face such difficult decisions, my first thought was, no, I haven't. But my second thought went to my mother's death a few years ago. After battling breast cancer, she suffered a massive stroke, and though she was brain dead, hooked up to various hospital devices as she was, she could have been kept alive indefinitely. And he puts alive in quotes. There was no question uh, what to do, as she had made it quite clear that she did not want to be kept, quote-unquote, alive by extraordinary means and had executed the appropriate legal instructions. And so, as, uh, and so we unhooked her and moved her to a more remote room in the hospital to free up the equipment she'd been using for another patient and stayed with her for the next 20 or so hours until she slipped away. The point of the story being that there is uh, a, quote-unquote, assisted suicide spectrum at work. Not so many years ago, many churches and other elements of society would have objected to exactly what my family did, letting my mother go, insisting instead that all steps be taken to keep her quote-unquote alive for as long as the technology was able. Kay, my mother, had instructed us what to do, and so in our way, what we did uh, do was to assist her suicide. At the other end of the spectrum are the permissive laws you referred to in the introduction to some European countries which enable even chronic alcoholics and the severely depressed to end life. What Canada and some American states are permitting lies somewhere in the spectrum's middle. Or consider the movie trope of the grievously wounded soldier dying in misery on the battlefield who's mercifully administered the coup de grace by one of his comrades, a practice as old as war itself, and uh, not many of us find moral objection to it, I expect. Speaking for Kay and myself, I'm glad that the state did not intervene in a life-and-death matter, which is none of its business, and I expect families in, ext in extremists further down the spectrum to share in that sentiment. That's uh, Steve. Thank you very much for sharing uh, that uh, experience that, that you had. We doubt, now do bring on uh, Dr. Margaret Batten, a medical ethicist at uh, University of Utah. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. A very moving account there from from uh, Steve, and he 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 points out a good uh, a good point that it, this is this this is a, a full spectrum, isn't it? Uh, uh, and I'm not sure. It, you you may maybe can uh, can speak to this. Uh, Steve said he expects that churches and others who oppose physician assisted suicide now, at some point in the past, opposed uh, you know taking people off ventilators and such. I'm not sure if that's the case or not. Well, they've opposed many things. They've opposed. Uh the use of, um, say, uh, anesthesia in childbirth, uh, many practices. Some There have been some periods of history where uh, religious groups, even the mainstream religious groups, have been much more relaxed, you might say, about end-of-life um, practices. But, but the real point is that up until about the middle of the 18th, um, 1800s, 
around 1850 is the date usually given. People died primarily of infectious and parasitic diseases, which were typically much more rapid-acting. The doctor couldn't do very much about them, except, of course, comfort. Uh, and they didn't have the very long terminal courses that we now have. So the, the, the ways in which we died, I think uh, Dr. Red um, mentioned that about a third of us will die of cancer. Another third will die of um, heart disease and other kinds of organ failure. Uh, a substantial uh, proportion will die of, um, with or of dementias. Right. Those, the ways we die are different from the ways that people died during the formative periods of our culture. So our um, political culture, our religious cultures, our um, uh, social um, cultures, the way we die is different now, and that's what we need to be rethinking, given our new conditions. And Dr. Pollack has just outlined many of the ways in which we um, try to cope with our extended downhill courses at the end uh, with um, high-tech modern medicine. We're in a new situation now and need to think more carefully about how we want that um, to go and not to go. Dr. Retta, I'm sure you heard, uh, and I'm sure many share his opinion, is concerned about a, a culture shift. And I, I want to, Dr. Pollock, uh, representative, is being able to tell us about uh, the experience, say, in Oregon, I think, which is the, the, the longest standing uh, such such law. I can't, I don't know how long the, they've in had their law in place. In this country, it's the In this country. Uh, so what's what's the experience uh, been been there? In Oregon? In Oregon, yeah. Uh, in Oregon, uh, what we find this is after 20 years. That law went into effect in 1997. Uh, and what we find is that um, although there are claims made about abuse, there's, there's no um, documented evidence of abuse at all. Uh, what we do find is that it's a comparatively small fraction of people who actually um, request and um, make use of um, the uh, Oregon Deaths with Dignity Act, as it's known, um, it's about three-tenths or four-tenths of the um, percent of the um, people who die in a given year. It's a small fraction of people. And even in the Netherlands, where this has been legal or legally recognized for even longer and very widely socially accepted and understood, it's still a small fraction of people who actually do this, about 4% of those who die, which is about 1% of the total population. Mm -hmm. But it has a, an importance in the cultural understanding uh, in these societies that there is this um, possibility if things should get too bad. Uh, there's a, we'll have a link to this as well. A Desert News article I've been making reference to and the they, they uh, interview a, a woman called uh, Gerda Saunders, who is facing yes. uh, end of life. She has uh, a progressive dementia, and uh, she's uh, she's uh, she's probably going to go to the Netherlands, where they have uh, some of the most liberal uh, laws. Uh, because in the U.S., uh, you, I think you have to be within six months terminal, uh, you know, diagnosis within uh, six months, even in some That's of these right. states. Netherlands, uh, they, they don't have that requirement. Because she wants her family around her, she wants to to make that choice of when she she goes out. 
I want to have you respond to the, the, the slippery slope arguments. And when people talk about slippery slope on this, they do point to Netherlands and Belgium, which have probably the, uh, the laws furthest along the, the spectrum. We should understand that there's an enormous amount, has been in this country, an enormous amount of distortion about what goes on in the Netherlands. So claims about um, extensions to um, chronic alcoholics and, um, you know, people who are um, um, at the uh, just bored at the end of life and um, uh, people with all sorts of um, other conditions that don't seem plausible given the way we think about things. So here's the difference between the um, uh, laws in this country, which now cover one in an estimated 5.5 people in this country live in places where uh, this would be an option. That's because it now includes California, our biggest state. The difference between the laws in this country and the laws in uh, Europe, specifically the Netherlands, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg, is that our safeguard is terminal illness. That is, that's the, the basic um, bulwark against, for instance, um, lovesick teenagers or um, middle-aged business people who are, you know, having financial problems. That's our safeguard. Theirs is intolerable suffering. They don't require terminal illness, but they do require that a person be um, suffering uh, or about to suffer in a way that is intolerable to them and cannot be relieved by any form of treatment that's acceptable to them. We don't require that. We require a terminal illness. There are two different kinds of safeguards, but both play a role. So a doctor there wouldn't help somebody who um, wasn't suffering in a way that was intolerable to them. Uh, a doctor here won't, wouldn't provide a medication for somebody uh, who wasn't terminally ill, uh, as identified by two different and independent physicians. Um, we we um, are going to the next guest very soon. I, I just want to, uh, for people who don't know, you you went so, through some of these issues per, on a personal level with, with your husband, right? That's true. My husband was, um, Brooke Hopkins, a um, professor at the U also, was um, very seriously injured in a double bicycle accident. Um, this is in 2008. He um, broke his neck and became quadriplegic. He was tremendously glad to have been rescued. He was um, he flourished for quite a long time, even though he was completely paralyzed from the neck down, almost completely. Uh, but it came to the point with many um, difficult changes in his health status that he thought it was um, time to die. Now, that was his view, right? That wasn't necessarily the view of people around him, although everybody understood. Uh, people supported what was his choice. But the real difference between his choice and what we're talking about here is that he was able to do legally something that people like, um, for instance, Dr. Pollock wouldn't be permitted to do. And that's because he had um, medical um, technology that was keeping him alive and had the legal right, as does anybody in this country, to discontinue it. 
So he had a ventilator. He had a a, um, a um, pacer, two kinds of um, a respiratory pacer and a cardiac pacer. He had a, a um, tube feed, um, a peg tube. He had uh, supplemental oxygen. And he could have legally all of those or any one of them discontinued and so allow himself to die, which is what he did. Yeah. But but it's a pretty fine line between that and the practice we're talking about. And part of the issue is why should he have that option, which meant so much to him to be able to control the end that he saw coming of his own life. Mm. And people like Dr. Pollack, who would be denied a similar degree of control, and the many, many people out there who are facing the ends of um, their lives from these long-term terminal diseases. And don't forget, every single one of us eventually dies, and we, so we, this is not a question about other people. This is a question about ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. How would you want right. your death to go? Right, right. Well, we, we appreciate you very much uh, uh, lending us our, your expertise and your personal experience as well. Dr. Margaret Batten, medical ethicist at the University of Utah. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a very brief break. When we come back, we'll be talking with John Kelly from the Disability Rights Group, Not Dead Yet, and uh, we'll, we'll be talking a little later with uh, Representative uh, Rebecca Chavez-Hauk as well. And I uh, hope to hear from you at upraxis at gmail.com. More following this brief break. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and AARP Utah, a nonpartisan social change organization with a membership helping people 50 and over improve their lives by providing information, events, and advocacy on key issues. More information is available at aarp.org. Support for legislative programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Provost's Office, Center for Women and Gender, offering an undergraduate minor and graduate certificate in Women and Gender Studies. Information at cwg.usu.edu. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. We're talking about uh, end-of-life uh, issues, uh, very important issues, of course. Representative uh, chavez Hauk has proposed HB 76, End-of-Life Options Act, which, uh, sh- which uh, she would like to see uh, Utah uh, follow the example of six other states and allow for physician-assisted uh, suicide. We've been talking with the various uh, experts. We uh, bring in now John Kelly from the group Not Dead Yet. Uh, John Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, tell us what Not Dead Yet is. Not Dead Yet is a grassroots group of people with disabilities who oppose assisted suicide as a lethal form of discrimination against disabled people. Uh, our group formed in the mid-90s to oppose uh, Dr. Jack Kevorkian as it turned out that uh, more than half of his victims were not in any way terminally ill the typical um, person was a, a middle-aged woman with a recent life upset who was depressed and chronically ill. And we see this constant mixing up of uh, disabled people and terminally ill people. So, for example, um, Margaret Batten's husband was, did not need assisted suicide at all, all they had to do was discontinue 
his respirator. And it's unfortunate that that example was brought into a discussion of assisted suicide. So you, uh, you're seeing at least a potential blending of, of these ideas of, say, dignity, autonomy, um, with the disabled, uh, this bleeding over into an idea of assisted suicide. Well, the examples, the evidence is right in front of us. The proponents talk about pain and emphasize pain and ask people for personal stories about loved ones who suffered in pain. But when we look at the, uh, the data from Oregon and Washington, um, people are given the drugs mainly due to psychosocial distress about disability. The first um, is distress about dependence on other people, losing autonomy, they call it, 92% of people. Second is distress over lost abilities, followed by feelings of shame and perceived actual loss of social status. They call that loss of dignity. And we disabled people who may depend on other people for our physical care resent and reject any notion of dignity being lost on dependence on other people. And we don't believe that any state should sponsor a program which lets people know that if they're distressed about their disability um, from a serious illness or not, that they're welcome to um, receive a prescription and, you know, have someone or themselves kill themselves. We reject the idea that um, assisted suicide brings control to people. It's actually a loss of control, and the use of the phrase end-of-life options is an outrageous euphemism because thousands of people who are diagnosed as terminal every year are not terminal. 15% are estimated to not be terminal. Every year in Oregon, people have outlived their six-month uh, diagnostic window. And so with these programs, innocent people's lives will be lost. Everyone is at risk. And then once someone signs the written request, their death certificate is basically filled out, and anyone can claim that they acted in good faith um, with the uh, death of the person. And so this just opens uh, the gates to people losing their lives based on faulty information, people being coerced and influenced by other people, um, such as you know, being told that they're a burden on family, friends, or caregivers. And we do not believe that uh, the state should set up a two-tier system where some people receive suicide prevention services, but people with uh, serious disabilities, including disabilities called by their serious illness, should be um, fast-forwarded to death. Mm. I wonder, we've been citing Oregon as the longest-standing uh, state in the U.S. with such a law in place. Have you seen, as your group seen or heard of, uh, problems? Oh, we have a, a six-page list of abuses and problems at the uh, Dread F Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund website. But... Um, We've seen a case such as Wendy Melcher, who was uh, killed by two nurses, one of whom was having an affair 
with Wendy's partner, and um, they inject, they uh, gave her massive amounts of uh, morphine suppositories. She died, and their case was never referred to um, criminal authorities for prosecution because they were not doctors, there was no assisted suicide order, and what happened to them was just um, they were secretly put on probation. Uh, We have cases of people who are denied um, treatment but offered assisted suicide. Famous cases in Oregon include Barbara Wagner and Randy Stroop, and now there is a seriously ill Californian woman, Stephanie Packer, who a week after assisted suicide was legalized in California was told by her insurer that they would not cover her recommended course of treatment, but they also informed her that her copay for assisted suicide would be a dollar twenty. So all these things, um, including elder abuse, one out of ten um, people over sixty are estimated to be abused every year. Could be financial, could be physical, it could be emotional. Um, and when people feel like they're a burden, um, that means it's not a free choice. So. The law is a fantasy based on um, notions of control that um, just aren't really there. And when a state thinks about a so-called public health program that will be available to everyone in the state, the state has to um, be aware that not everyone in a state are uh, well-behaving citizens. The fact that there's no witness required at the death means that anyone could take action against the person and again because they can just say um, good faith that there's no investigation permitted so these are terrible bills innocent lives will be lost well we, we appreciate your uh, your time very much john kelly from the disability rights group and not dead yet has been with us thank you thank you and uh, we are going to uh, go next to Representative uh, Rebecca Chavez-Hauk. Let me get this email in before we do that. Uh, this is come in to upraxis@gmail.com, like yours can as well. Hope that you'll uh, share your opinion, upraxis@gmail.com. This is from Alec. Alex says, it uh, frankly shouldn't matter what religions argue against any legal measure. Their values and opinions have no bearing on what other people decide. If it is against a church's teachings, then members of those churches should not choose to die with dignity. But they have no right to force others to follow their rules. Others' uh, concepts of a deity should not influence public policy. That's from Alec. Thanks for all of those uh, comments. We now bring in Rebecca uh, Chavez-Hawk, Representative uh, Democrat from uh, Salt Lake City, who is uh, uh, the author of this bill. Uh, Representative Chavez-Hawk, thank you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So HB 76, End of Life Options uh, Act, and I I know you've run versions of this bill for the last uh, couple of years. Uh, That's right. uh, What uh, what has prompted this? Why why are you running this? 
Well, um, you know, I was reached out by a number of constituents in my district who had heard the story of Brittany Menard. And for those who have been following death with dignity or end of life option legislation, uh, as it has moved through the several states, uh, many are familiar with the story of Brittany Menard, who was a California resident. Um, when she was stricken with uh, terminal brain cancer, uh, wanted to exercise the option of deathless dignity in her own state of California so she could have her family with her, uh, but it wasn't legal at that time. So she moved to Oregon with her mother and her husband, um, did the best that she could in fighting her disease, um, spent some time traveling with what months she had left before the pain became intolerable, and then exercised her option to utilize uh, the death with dignity law in Oregon and, and hastened her uh, death with a peaceful passing in November of 2014. Um, so I've, uh, I was contacted by constituents, including one who wanted to use, utilize this, this option. Um, and I would argue against the opponents who say that these individuals uh, are not fighters, that they are, are being um, uh, coerced or that they're vulnerable individuals. The patients that I've worked with are extremely brave, extremely strong-willed in that they are trying to fight their disease. As many have told me, um, they don't want to die, but that option has been taken away from them by their condition, by their terminal illness. These people are not disabled. These people are in active dying. They, are, they have a terminal condition that is killing them. Um, and they do not want to suffer inordinately uh, at the end of at the end of that transition. Um, so I have had constituents that have reached out to me, uh, one of whom, a very brave, amazing individual by the name of Carrie Snyder, who was diagnosed with lung cancer, terminal lung cancer, two years ago, was able to fight her disease longer than her six-month prognosis, which was amazing, and of that we are very thankful, but she just passed away a week ago. Uh, and to her last moments, wished that she had not been placed in this circumstance by the state and by her government. Um, she told me a, a numerous times during that last week that she felt disenfranchised um, by her state and by her government. So, you know, I've had constituents that have come forward. Um, the, the, the process is very rarely used. It's been in Oregon as a law for almost two decades. Within those two decades, not quite 200, excuse me, 2,000 people have asked for the prescription. So just fewer than 2,000 people have asked for the prescription in 20 years in Oregon. And of those individuals, only two-thirds actually use it. Um, for the most part, patients who request uh, the use of, of a medication to hasten their passing, so if they so choose, are uh, they want it for autonomy. They want it in case the suffering becomes unbearable. And if you look at that two-thirds that use it and the one-third that don't, others have chosen not to utilize it. So there's no coercion. The, if you look at published data, if you look at um, uh, articles, medical journals of repute uh, that are reputable, um, there's, no, um, there's no data that show that vulnerable populations are targeted by the legislation. By the way, uh, Representative Chavez Hauk is able, to, I believe, to stay with us for a few more minutes. We're going over the top of the hour. Uh, right now, um, we'll take a very brief break to, uh, to hear our station identification. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. 
You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking about uh, HB 76, End of Life Options Act, uh, which is authored by uh, State Representative Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, Democrat from Salt Lake City. We've had a vigorous discussion on this, including your comments. And uh, if you would like to give us uh, your comments, if you haven't, uh, upraxcess at gmail.com is our email address, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to get your perspective on this. We'll go another three or four minutes uh, with this uh, important uh, topic. Uh, so, um, Representative Chavez-Hauk, we talked earlier, in fact, at the beginning of the hour with Representative Ed Red who's a medical doctor, um, he expressed concerns, I'm sure shared by at least many of his Republican uh, colleagues, uh, a fear of a cultural shift, which he sees as coming on on these issues, and uh, which I think he feels would be accelerated if your bill were to pass. What, what do you say to that? Well, you know, I've heard that argument presented a couple of times by individuals who feel that if we pass this legislation that we're immediately going to move toward a space where uh, euthanasia or physician-assisted suicide, which is when a medical provider actually administers medication to an individual, will occur in the United States. And, you know, the, the, the drawing of distinctions is very important when we look at public policy. Um, we are not Europe. We have different values in, in, our, in the United States. Um, you know, we look at what's happened in Oregon and the other states where this has passed, and people have drawn the distinction that that's not what they're comfortable with. They're not comfortable with physicians making these determinations and administering the medication. Although I would question, I mean, if, um, if we're talking about physician assistance in this regard, we already utilize palliative sedation. Um, and I've talked to many family members of individuals who have passed who felt very guilty and very frustrated with the fact that they were they were the ones that were asked to, um, you know, give palliative sedation to ease pain of their passing of their, you know, their family members that were suffering intolerably um, and felt very ill-equipped to make those decisions and those distinctions. Um, so I would actually argue that what we have present with palliative sedation uh, inclines more towards assisted suicide than allowing an individual, the patient themselves, to make that determination of when they want to take that medication. Um, um, you know, you've got other people making that decision for them right now instead of allowing the patient to do so. Um, you know, we have distinctions in our community and in our society. Um, you know, if, if, if we were going to automatically be in a space where, um, where you have a, a situation like we do in Europe, then uh, why don't we have universal health care? You know, we've had Medicare for nearly 50, 50 plus years, but yet we don't have universal health care. So, you know, we as a, as a nation, we do things differently here. And I think that we would be able to draw a line as to what we were, would be comfortable with related to um, extending this type of assistance to move towards the continuum of end-of-life options that would include euthanasia. I just don't see that happening in the United States at all. Well, we, we now have uh, reached the, the end of our time. Uh, Rebecca Chavez-Hauk, uh, Representative uh, Democrat from uh, Salt Lake City, she's proposing House Bill uh, 76, End-of-Life Options Act, and we'll, we'll uh, see how, how that goes. Uh, we appreciate you very much uh, coming on uh, talking about your bill. All right. Thank you for the invitation. appreciate it. And we appreciate the discussion and appreciate your uh, input. You can keep those comments coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Thanks so much, and uh, we hope you'll be with us tomorrow. 
We uh, will be talking about uh, children's books. We'll be inviting you to email or call us with your favorite children's book of all time or perhaps a, 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 tout a, a children's book that you've just fallen in love with. And we'll be talking with uh, Newbery uh, uh, medalist panelists and uh, Caldecott uh, panelists as well. That's coming up tomorrow. Thanks for listening today. I'm Connor Rivers, producer of Access Utah here at Utah Public Radio, alongside my fellow producers, Krista Black and Amy Kobabe, and our host, Tom Williams. We work to bring you stories and discussion about things happening here in our community. If you have comments, questions, or even show ideas, please call 1-800-826-1495 or email us at upraccess at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. Almost 40 years ago, James Schleffer first heard the sound of the shakuhachi, the Japanese wood flute. Today, he's among the few Westerners to be a certified grand master on the instrument. He's a composer as well. Coming up, Schleffer's concertante featuring the shakuhachi on the next Performance Today from...